We were in a series uh, looking at the spiritual discipline of hospitality. That's what we're doing this morning. Uh, we're looking at it in terms of um, it being a counterculture response to the fragmented, hyper-individualized, isolated society that we find ourselves in. Although this morning you were not looking like that at all. There was a beautiful picture of community and hospitality. Um, Sam last, night, last time was really excited about sharing a three-point sermon. Um, and he was really stoked about that. That was the heart and the how and the hope were his three points, and that was how hospitality reflects the kingdom of God. And uh, he reminded us that this is not just a missional opportunity, but it's actually something that we need in a tough year. We need to just gather together. And like Jen said, it's been lovely to see those opportunities of feasting together around the table and just gathering and learning to enjoy each other's company. And Sam also mentioned last week that this could be a challenge for some of us. I like it when you say a challenge for you and then I exclude myself and look like I don't have the challenge. It's a challenge for some of us just to move from being disconnected to connected, to actually have to initiate relationship and create table moments and not just think, gosh, that's a beautiful metaphor of Jesus, but actually do the embracing of the reality. And so, uh, like Jen said, she's declared pizza boxes as perfectly acceptable hospitality. I'd like to introduce fish and chips at the beach as also perfectly acceptable hospitality. Um, Picnics, dinners, um, coffee catch-ups, desserts running out of meals, breakfasts, a few people do that kind of thing. Just whatever which way that you can get together with us and with others. And some of you will do 100 tables of beautifully ironed tablecloths and some of you won't own a tablecloth and both are okay. So we've kind of got an understanding now that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of meals. So he, was, uh, he saw things, he noticed people, he invited, and he restored. And one of my favorite Bible stories as a kid was the story of Zacchaeus. And we used to sing a song about Zacchaeus, anyone reaching back into their minds, about Zacchaeus being a very little man, and about Jesus saying, I'm coming to your house for tea. Anyone. No, I will never do that, Christine. <laughs> but a weird... I got your number. Uh, There's a weird kind of muscle memory thing happens that I know it's this one. You know, Zacchaeus was a very little, it's almost a song. No, it's not happening. Um, But in my mind, it's the very early 80s. It's a power Methodist church hall. And we are belting that song out. And we cheered for Zacchaeus uh, because he was a really great tree climber. And we cheered for him because he got tea. And that was probably the line that really grabbed me. Not a tree climber, but a sucker for a cup of tea from a very early age. And so alongside just a really beautiful, simplistic song, and with a great story and a happy ending, um, there's actually so much more going on in there than just sycamore trees and coming to your house for tea. It's almost a song, Christine. We'll talk about that later. So uh, here's Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. So Jesus is making his way through a town. It's something he likes to do. He makes his way through gathering crowds of people and general busyness and chaos. And in the midst of those crowds is a particularly unlikable individual. 
He's rich and he's most likely rich through dishonest means. So he's been collecting revenue for the Romans, often through extortion. He's regarded as a traitor since they are in, he is in the service of foreign oppressors. And as Luke likes to point out kind of medical and physical details, he's short. I don't know if that makes it on the level as being a tax collector and rich through dishonest means, but it's in there. But despite all of this, something has sparked Zacchaeus' interest. Something has drawn him to Jesus. Some kind of recognition of conviction, maybe, or just curiosity or a desire to climb a tree. But ultimately, it's Jesus that notices Zacchaeus. Whatever sideshow view that Zacchaeus thinks he's primed to have from his tree, Jesus sees him. So just picking up in verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. So Jesus looks up. He notices, he sees, he calls Zacchaeus by name. He then tells him to hurry up. It's a bit cute. You know, it's kind of quirky. It's maybe a little bit cheeky. It's kind of overly familiar, but it's strongly connective. He's just skipped through all the awkward stages of getting to know someone and landed right at hospitality, which is a very big statement to everyone who's watching because though they may not choose to see Zacchaeus and make room for him, they are fully noticing him now. This is what John Tyson calls the inefficient ministry of Jesus. Which means when Jesus likes to pause in the middle of busyness, or when he chooses to notice an individual in a massive crowd of people, or when he jumps the queue, or subverts the system, or doesn't follow the appropriate societal norms, making an outsider a priority, asking him for dinner, honouring the dishonourable. N.T. Wright says this, What made such an act so scandalous was not, of course, that Jews of Jesus' day were opposed to forgiveness or love or grace and so forth, but that they were not expecting these gifts to be available outside of the context of temple. Jesus, in practicing this hospitality, made it more than just about sharing a meal. It was a way of identifying with Zacchaeus and making him part of his community, a point that the Pharisees both understood and despised. Here the table became the space for forgiveness, for love and for grace, for being seen and being known and being restored. Verse 8 says this, Meanwhile Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this house today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So Zacchaeus' life is instantly transformed. He makes a dramatic change to the way he's living from this table moment. He was sought, he was saved, and salvation has come to him. He is found and he is restored. And that is the vision of the kingdom. Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13 is also another familiar story. I don't have an action song to go with this one. But this is the story where Jesus is beautifully anointed at Bethany. The disciples get upset about the interruption. They get upset about the waste of perfume, or perhaps that it was a little bit of an awkward kind of intimate display of excessive love that made them uncomfortable. But Jesus takes this teachable moment and delivers the ultimate zinger. Remember this one, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And he's right, here we are, remembering. 
discussing, but I want to focus on another person at this table, the host. And all of this beautiful, teachable truth is happening at the house of a man called Simon. And he's mentioned in verse 6b. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. So the village of Bethany has more airtime in the Bible than this particular Simon. But I want to talk about him today. Here is Jesus. He's in Bethany, and he's at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. Simon is a man who previously had leprosy, meaning he doesn't have it now. But he did. And everything that was previously is what defined his past. Who he was, how he was seen, what it was called, it defined his very existence. Having leprosy meant more than just the visible sores of sickness. It meant being an outcast, being rejected, being untouchable, being excluded, being lonely, and being considered other. Though the text does not mention it, it is very likely that Jesus had healed Simon from this leprosy. The law was very clear about requiring people with this disease to live apart from others. Those who carried the illness were considered officially unclean, and those who associated with those who carried the illness were also considered unclean. So fear and stigma alone meant that there'd be no opportunity for any gathering around any table with others in his home. And now here he is, just casually hosting dinners with Jesus in his home, at a table. I hope he's not thinking too much about how to get the perfume oil off the floor, or how to deal with disciples that are having all sorts of exasperated moments, or kind of reveling in the sense of what Jesus is revealing as truth. I hope he's smiling. I hope he's just sitting there having the bestest time ever. I hope that him and Jesus have chatted about what it means to re-engage with society, having previously been a leper. I hope that joy is palpable as he hosts. I hope he loves being the witness and is happily in the background to this unforgettable scene because he has a front row, a front row seat. He is connected. He is no longer other. He gets a mention and he's been gathered in and now he himself gathers in. And according to Sam's wishes, there's a selfie, might have been a sneaky, Uh, of Simon hosting. There's quite a lot going on in this picture. It's a Flemish one, so it's a bit flat. They hadn't quite worked out full perspective yet. But I'm picking Simon in the middle, just really calm and coolly hosting his meal. There's a smile under that big beard, I'm sure. Community is the antidote to loneliness. And at the risk of mixing my metaphors, hospitality is the vehicle. Hospitality notices It sees, it invites, it includes, it redeems and restores. The kingdom is at work in hospitality. Sebastian Junger in his book Tribe, which is a study of homecoming and belonging, says this, we can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply and dangerously alone. And what does living surrounded but unknown to others do to us? A recent survey revealed over half of all Americans reported that sometimes or almost always they feel like no one knows them well. Loneliness has become a modern epidemic. And not just for social reasons, but for medical reasons too. Loneliness has now been recognised by doctors as a foundational contributor to aggression, depression, alcohol and drug abuse, to Alzheimer's and a number of chronic illnesses. 
Uh, Tyler Stanton, who's the pastor at Bridgetown Church, was quoting these statistics and he said this, our deepest human desire is to be fully known and to be fully loved. But our greatest human fear is to be fully known and yet seen as unlovable. And so we settle for the soul-crushing human experience of loneliness, unknowable and therefore unlovable. And what can feel like safety when we do that and self-preservation and just being all wrapped up in a bubble of isolation is in fact loneliness. And this is not just a crisis for the other, the outsider. This is a crisis for us too, right in the midst of church community. We can hold back. We can isolate ourselves. We can preserve ourselves. We can stay on the edges. We can avoid being vulnerable or known. But simply put, loneliness has the ability to destroy us as people. Regardless of personality or social preferences or energy levels, all people are actually designed to connect with other people and at their core long for connection. I recognised this feeling for myself at a really lonely point in my early 20s. I had a new job that was a bit out of town. I was a bit out of my depth, to be honest. I was in a new environment with new people that I wasn't quite sure how to connect with, and I was really trying to make a new start. I was trying to leave behind a certain group of people and start my life again. I was living with a bustling, busy family, and there was no one in there my age. And I had long evenings of nothing to do but kind of hide out in my room, even too much alone time for an introvert. But to protect myself, because I became aware that they might have been worried about me, and maybe to protect myself from that thought too, I wanted to keep up the veneer of having it all under control. So I did a very strange thing. I made pretend phone calls in the hallway, in the shared phone. I talked to no one, so that those going past me could think, oh, she's got someone to talk to. It's 1999 when I'm doing this, and I have a brick-style Nokia phone in my car glove box, but in the olden days, that's a privilege, and you don't just use it willy-nilly. It's for vehicle-related emergencies only, and it costs an awful lot of money to use it, and it's really good for playing snakes on and ringing the AA. So I had to use the normal phone. I'm not proud of my pretend phone calls. I acted really well, though, I thought, when I did them, and I had plenty of time to plan it out and think it through. I wanted to look like I was connected and that the family around me could just be relieved. But there's a real sadness there, and maybe it's a bit weird, but it was a strongly protective response. Nonetheless, it's a way to manage pain without wanting to reach out. Singleness is lonely. Motherhood is lonely. Being overwhelmed is lonely. Being in pain is lonely. Being new is lonely. Serving in church is lonely. Not serving in church is lonely. Being busy is lonely. Being other is lonely. Just sitting in church can be lonely. Feeling misunderstood is lonely. Living with household economic pressures is lonely and feeling ashamed is lonely. Don't assume that you know what loneliness looks like. Loneliness can look like busyness. 
it can look very well presented. It can look like it's surrounded by people with no sign of obvious emptiness. It can look super helpful to others. It can look functional. It can look caring. It can be a season or a moment or a day or an entire lifestyle. It doesn't just have to look dark and needy and dirty and singular. It can look like a wealthy tax collector and it can look like a rejected leper. Hospitality, however, in its simplicity and orderliness, has the magic potential to make a way through this. Hospitality creates a space, an opportunity, a connection, an invitation into family to be known and to be seen. It might be that it offers a meal, but it also offers a hand, somewhere to sit, something to do, some dignity, someone else's cooking, a conversation, just a chance to be yourself. I have recently had the privilege of being on the receiving end of some much-needed hospitality. And it looked like this for me, calling an old friend in another city and asking to stay on very short notice. And that friend just saying, yes, whatever you need. Stay as long as you like. I'll pick you up. Just say when. You can borrow the car. I'll shuffle the kids around. You can have Beth's room. I'll change the sheets. She'll cope. What kind of tea do you drink again? I ate nachos around a very noisy table, hurriedly wiped down, seven of us, chairs dragged in from other rooms and re-spaced out to avoid simmering sibling drama and lots of competitive conversations. I got the best chair, apparently, the least wobbly one. I got the nicest water glass. I enjoyed every single moment of this utter mirth and madness with quick refreshes of manners through gritted teeth happening to my side. And I was made welcome. Space was made for me. I was ushered into someone else's everyday life, someone's ordinary weeknight dinner where they had to put in extra beans and lentils to kind of stretch the mince out. There was no fancy. There was no extra special anything. There was no sense of me being other either. Just room carved out for me, someone doing a quick rush to the service station to get Earl Grey tea because they knew it was a wee bit particular. There was love, there was grace, there was kindness poured out and it was very humbling but very soothing. And the church, us, when we're at our most functioning self, as a body, as a community, as a family, sometimes as a hospital, we are the antidote to loneliness. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was challenged by the experts in religious law with the question of what was the most important commandment, he replied this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. God wants his people first and above all to love him. Every part of their being is to be involved in this love. And the second commandment that was so essential, he kind of just put it in there, mentioned it along with the first one. Jesus says it's similar to the first commandment, likely because he's talking about who and how we love your neighbor, yourself. The way we love our neighbor is the way we want to be looked after ourselves. God's greatest desire for any human being is that he or she love God and then love others. And then following that answer, Jesus was challenged again by the expert in the law on who exactly that neighbor was. And I love this question. He's just kind of digging down for some details. But perhaps it was more just than wanting the details of how that love played out. Perhaps he was looking for a little bit of a way out. You know, when you feel uncomfortable, something Jesus challenges you on, you're like, cool, so what does that look like specifically? Maybe he was thinking, how much time is that love going to take? 
Maybe he was thinking, what kind of commitment does that love look like? Is there any time left to focus on myself? Either way, Luke 10 records it as this, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers in another well-known parable and leaves him with another question, which is typically Jesus' style, in verse 36, and says at the end of the Good Samaritan story, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in law replies again, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus, with the mic drop, says, go and do likewise. Go and notice. Cross the road. Be inconvenienced. Show mercy. Enlarge your view on who you consider worthy of help. Expand your thinking on what your neighbor looks like. Be engaged. Restore dignity. Make space for someone. It's a really big call, but there's lots of little steps in the middle. We are here as a gathering of all sorts. All shapes and sizes, a little slice of society all mushed in here together. A representation of all walks of life held together by the fact that we follow or try to follow Jesus. We try to follow his way and his truth and his life and we try and understand that he unconditionally loves us. Here we can start and take the opportunity just to look up and out and walk across the hall and notice someone. There's a TV show on Disney Plus that we've just finished watching in its third season that I do want to talk about. But in talking about it, I don't want you to feel like I'm suggesting you need to watch it and therefore feel that I've led you astray or that you need to pray for my soul. So if it's possible to not judge me in any pastoral capacity, and I already told Sam, and instead just hear out my revelatory findings, here goes. This show is called Only Murders in the Building. It contains no biblical characters or followers of Jesus, but it is a very clear picture of community being an antidote to loneliness. Here the vehicle is not necessarily hospitality, however, but the practice, or the practice of 100 tables, it's actually solving murders together while making a true crime podcast, but you're going to get the idea. In the Gospel Coalition article that was published last month, they reviewed only murders in the building. And they said this is stubbornly pro-community in an isolated age. Mike Cosper wrote this, alongside the comedy and the pathos is an intense and timely interest in what it looks like to stubbornly choose community with flawed and frustrating people in an isolated age. It's not referring to the church, it's referring to a TV show. In between the punchy kind of insult-driven dialogue, the heart of the show is not the murders, it's the building, or more precisely, the community that forms within it. The real mystery that Charles and Oliver and Mabel are trying to solve is their loneliness. This TV show made it onto our screens when COVID-19 was well underway, accelerating the already existing decline of friendship and connection in our modern age and contributing to the epidemic of loneliness. After months of isolation and questioning about whether we gather or not, the show actually was gaining popularity because its timing was perfect. It was a fascinating secular commentary. This is what it was telling us. Community is necessary. Loneliness can be escaped. Even grief and tragedy can be a catalyst to connection. Mike Cosper goes on to write in this article about this TV show that even though it was likely unintentional, there's a sentiment there that echoes a foundational Christian understanding of community. Unlikely friendship was knit into the DNA of the church from the beginning, when zealots and tax collectors and fishermen and sinners of all kinds encountered grace and began following Jesus together. 
In Luke 6, verses 12 to 16, we have the record of Jesus choosing the 12 apostles. It goes like this. One day soon afterwards, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. I find that so funny because he's about to give a list of people that he's going to choose to gather around him and be his 12 disciples, and it was an all-night prayer session to create that list. You don't need to find that funny. That's just funny. At, at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be the apostles. And here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Altheus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. We very quickly and casually read over that verse because we know who the 12 disciples are. We kind of think of them as one word, disciples, like they're a band. They're a pre-formed group of just collect together. We don't think about the weight of the awkward community that Jesus intentionally designed his, mar- his message to be carried in. The community that clashed and opposed and conflicted even before it was sent out on mission. This is why Sam refers to them as the Muppets. There's going to be two Simons, but that's okay because one's a fisherman and he'll have a name change soon and the other one's a zealot. So clearly you're not going to mix those two up. And there's going to be two Judases, but that's also okay because awkwardly one's going to betray Jesus. And we've put a tax collector in there with local fishermen and we've named some brothers sons of thunder because they are being a wee bit like that and eventually one of them is going to doubt this is the list that we throw together it's almost like he did it on purpose almost like he was trying to show us something our design is by nature from a creator God who in himself exists in community but here's the rub Church community is more than just about alleviating loneliness. To actually live in the gift of community, the more vulnerable one becomes to the inevitable ugliness of it. The ugliness is us. Just us, human selves. Not agreeing on stuff. Not liking the same stuff. Not looking the same way. Not talking the same way about stuff. Or even doing stuff in the same way. Not liking people makes community and hospitality just a wee bit awkward. But the gift of community of Christ is this. We need others, we need Jesus, and we learn to follow him with others. It's always been his design, always been his way, always been his pattern, and always been his plan. It's more than just becoming comfortably like-minded. It's embracing the messy on the way through. The gospel and all of scripture reinforces the truth that we were created for community. God created us not to be isolated beings, but rather people who live life with others. The primary way that we as Christians live in community is by belonging to the church. And don't panic about needing to get this right. We are not the first group of Christians to have awkwardly had to work out how to live and belong together. Paul's letters are full of teaching about getting a strange bunch of strangers to become family to one another, to lean into serving one another, to loving one another, to forgiving one another and resolving conflict with one another, to being hospitable and gracious towards one another. God's person is experienced among God's people. The Bible cover to cover is the story of God redeeming the world through community and Jesus' answer to the great ache is us. John writes in 1 John, verse, uh, 1 John 4, sorry, verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves who has been born of God and knows God, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So don't worry. 
We don't have to do this in our own strength and on our best behavior. Our invitation here is to love one another, and that comes from the source of all love itself, God. John is reminding us that in our loving of God, a love for others will just flow from this. And this is good news. We can love others in God, particularly when we've run out of energy in ourselves, when we've got no time to notice another, or we've run out of grace to really see another person, or we've run out of kindness to make room for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, the classic exploration of Christian community, says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around him will create community. Tyler Stanton summarizes uh, what Bonhoeffer said this way. We need to understand that the church we want very quickly becomes the enemy of the church we actually have. And until we can love one another as we are, messy and incomplete, we cannot become who God has made us to be. We are designed to live and to function and to love and to thrive and to flourish and to be known in community. The church is the community of God's people, and despite its messiness and awkwardness, there's actually room for us all here beyond our own spiritual journeys. But like Sam said last week, we can often isolate ourselves as a fear response to others, as a reaction to past rejections and hurts, and the need to protect ourselves as we enter this community. We can often be surrounded by brave people who have just, by turning up to church, find that that's all they can manage, and that's okay. As Sam said, the train stops at every station. So here's the good news. If we follow Jesus, we're stuck with community. And we're stuck with others. Jesus and people and meals and wholeness seem to go hand in hand together. And as we learn to become these table gatherers, even though I'm sure there are those you'd like to remove from the table occasionally, or at least have a little space from at the table every now and then, my prayer is that we become invitational notices that we get to practice that here as well as taking that out, that we get to embrace the awkward because we are awkward, that we get to welcome one another, that we get to make space for the weary and the disconnected because we noticed them. And in really beautiful and ordinary ways, we can intentionally practice hospitality right in the middle up against a lonely world. So in this season, my encouragement to you is this. Keep asking yourself, what does it look like for you in your context, in your season with what's going on for your family to just slow down a little bit this term, to just gather around a table a whole lot more? And as Sam said last week, this huge, bold statement, if we choose the table, we transform our church and we move from disconnection to connection, from being the outside to being known in the house of God. And this will take real tables and real neighbours and real courage. This morning I want to give a little bit of time to get this into our hearts. Because if people don't scare you, hospitality might. And if hospitality doesn't scare you, community might. And if you don't want to talk about loneliness, that's absolutely fine. But I want to make a space to get this message to settle into our hearts and minds and to invite Jesus into our story, whether there be hesitations or hurt or a need for courage to commit to community again. One option is we carry on as we are. We form our own groups. We introduce ourselves to our own people. We get comfortable with people that look like us and we make our community work really well. Another option is that we start to look out. 
that we see and that we notice. And often we can say in ourselves when we do that, oh, but I'm new, or I'm in this season, or I'm too busy, or I'm a bit overwhelmed, or I'm already serving, or I'm not up for serving, or I've been permission to not do things. We can give ourselves lots of reasons, and I do not want to dishonor the validation of those reasons. But when we choose tables, we transform our church community. When we choose to see others, we give them the chance to be transformed.